My name is Daniel Colon Ramos. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Cell Biology and Neuroscience at Yale University. I'm also an MBL fellow and an adjunct professor in the Instituto de Neurobiología de la Universidad de Puerto Rico. And today I'll be telling you about our work on the cell biology of the synapse and behavior using the nematode C elegans that you can see here. Now, if you look at this nematode that we have lit up like a Christmas tree, and you know how we did this, we, you know how we did this work, then you can skip on to the second and third part of our lecture series where we'll be talking about the specific discoveries we've made using these transgenic nematodes. If, however, you're looking at this and you're wondering how is it that they can create transgenic nematodes where they can see specific neurons and specific synapses, this is the lecture for you. By the end of the lecture today, you will, know if, you will understand how we were able to do this, and you will know, for example, how we image synapses in living animals. I'll also explain how we're able to track behaviors and neuronal function in vivo, and how we can use genetics to discover the molecular and cellular pathways that underpin the cell biology of the synapse and behavior. Before I tell you about how we do our work, I'd like to explain how I became interested in these questions. I think all scientists have a memory, uh, something that they associate with becoming interested in science, and this one is mine. These are baby leatherback turtles that are hatching from a nest not far away from where I was born and raised in Puerto Rico. And I was always fascinated by the fact that these animals, from the moment that they, are, that they come out of their egg, they know exactly where to go. They're beelining it towards the ocean. And they even go to turtle school. So how, how is it that they know how to go towards the ocean? And there's also something amazing that's happening here. These animals, which will grow out to be about the size of a Volkswagen, about nine feet long, they travel the world's oceans. And when they have to make the most important decision in their life, which for a turtle is where it's going to lay its eggs, it will remember this beach and it will come back to it. So with that, I like to underscore that animals' behaviors, like even these behaviors that seem very complicated to us, when we think about it, we can coarse grain reduce them to, for example, innate behaviors or hardwired behaviors and experiential memories. In the case of these turtles, the innate behavior is the capacity of the animal to know that it needs to go towards the beach when it's born. And the experiential memory is the capacity to learn that it has to come back to that beach, uh, which, depending what beach it was born, it will change. Now, they're both underpinning the architecture of the nervous system. The innate behaviors in the developmental programs that lead to the formation of the circuit architecture that underpin the animal behavior and the experiential memories in the interplay between that circuit architecture and the experiences that the animal will have throughout its life. Now, if you're interested in these questions, these are very broad questions in neuroscience. How is it that the architecture of the nervous system facilitates behaviors? How, how can you make a question like that tractable? How can you actually um, advance knowledge on a fundamental question like that? And the way that we choose to do it in my lab is by using the nematode C elegans. And the nematode C elegans is a tiny worm. It's about the size of a comma in a sentence. It's over here. And as I mentioned before, these, these turtles, the leatherbacks, they will remember the, wish, the beach in which they were born. They'll come back to lay its eggs, like this one is doing here. And C. elegans also has behaviors that are modified by the experience of the animal. For example, C. elegans does not have an innate preferred temperature like humans do. C. elegans instead can learn to prefer a temperature depending on the conditions in which it was raised. Animals that were grown at 15 degrees Celsius, when put in a temperature gradient, in the middle, for example, these are worm tracks that you're seeing here, and you, you can know that they're all moving towards that side of the screen, which is the colder side of the gradient. Now, if you take isogenic animals, animals that are genetically identical to those, and you now raise them at 25 degrees, and you put them in the same experimental conditions, 
they will now move towards this side. So let me break this down. The main difference between the animals over here and these animals here is not the genetics because they're isogenic. It's not the conditions that they're seeing in the experiment because they're the same. It's actually the previous experience that they had. And that previous experience altered the capacity of the animal to respond to the same conditions. So I'm interested in how that happens. We have collaborated with a number of labs to establish experimental paradigms that allow us to track these behaviors. And for example, we can take these worm tracks, we can align them in the same origin point like we're doing in this graph, and you can see them all moving, for example, when they raise at 15 degrees towards the colder side of the gradient or towards the warmer side of the gradient, and we can quantify their behaviors. But importantly, we can use the nematode C. elegans, which, which is a genetically tractable model, as I'm going to be showing you in this lecture, to understand what is it that's changing about the circuitry, which enables the animals to respond to the same stimuli differently. Now, if you want to learn more about how other labs, besides my own lab, and how historically the community has actually tackled the questions of behavioral genetics, I uh, encourage you to visit this website where there are a number of videos. This is actually a treasure trove from the MBL NSMB course where there are a number of videos on this topic. Regarding our own research, it turns out that the behavior I just showed you is controlled by a discrete number of neurons that I have schematized over here. And we know, for example, that this neuron that we are representing with this, with this triangle is a single cell. It's called AFD and it connects specifically to this other neuron, which is called AIY. Now, the names are not important. What's important is that we know the identity of these neurons. They're single cells, and we know how they're connected to each other, because for the nematode C. elegans, we actually have a map of every single connection in the, in the context of the animal. And what my lab has done is that we have either adapted or developed single cell promoters, which I'll be explaining in a second what they are, to be able to do this type of experiments here. So what we're doing here is that in living animals, all these micrographs were taken in live animals, we are labeling single cells. So there are hundreds of other cells that you're not seeing in this picture because we have labeled specifically the AFD neuron, which looks like this. This is the cell body here, this is the axon, and you can see the dend right over here. Now, we have done that for the sensory cell, which is AFD. We have also done it for the downstream interneurons. And the important concept here is that we can label, in the context of the living animal, single cells. So we have the animal behaving, and we can look at the cell morphology. So how can we do this? How can we label single cells in living animals? And that's what I'll be explaining in the next few slides. The way that we do it is by creating what are called transgenic nematodes. These are nematodes that carry genes that are normally not present in other sibling nematodes in the wild. These are nematodes that only exist in the lab. And this is how we do it. We actually have, this is the uh, body of the nematode here. This is the gonad that you're seeing here. And this, this little thing here is, the, is, a, is a needle that's going to go into the animal, as you're going to see in a second. And we're injecting the gonad. Boom. There. We injected it with DNA. So that's the technical part. If you're a technician, that's what you do. And then in the next generation, you collect animals that are transgenic. But what is it that we are injecting there? That's the important question. And I'll show you in a, in a few seconds. Essentially, we're injecting DNA that carries the instructions that are going to label the specific neurons. And this DNA, which, which is called a transgene, the, the conceptually has three parts that are important. So if you understand these three parts, you'll conceptually understand what this is about. It has a promoter, and the promoter is essentially a genomic region, a part of the DNA, that drives expression in specific tissues. So this is a part of the DNA that's usually upstream of a gene, and it tells the organism where that gene should be expressed. If you understand 
where the promoter drives expression normally, you can use that same information to then drive expression of whatever you want in that cell. So it's the promoter, then it's the cDNA. The cDNA is the coding DNA, cDNA, and the cDNA essentially has the instructions that will encode a given protein or a gene. And then we have a probe, and the probe can change, but it's usually something that you are, that you use to visualize a biological process. So a common probe that we use is GFP, which is green fluorescent protein. And I'm, in the next five or 10 slides, I'll be going one by one and explaining each of these uh, different component systems. So let's start with the promoter. The promoter, as I mentioned, is a genomic region. And what happens in an, or in an organism like C. elegans is that there's a community of researchers that every time they discover a gene, they characterize where that gene gets expressed. So you know not only the gene that you discover, but you also know which tissues that gene gets expressed in. And using that knowledge, there were a number of genes that were discovered by other groups that were expressed cell-specifically, for example, in the AFD neuron. So because we knew the identity of a given gene that gets expressed in the AFD neuron, we can look at that promoter. And we're not particularly interested in that gene, but we can use that knowledge. We can use the promoter region and then drive the expression of whatever we want in that neuron because those, those instructions are modular. You can, it's, it's kind of like a little module that you can take away from that gene and use it to drive expression of something else. In this case, we're using the cell-specific promoter of AFD to drive GFP, and that's how we're able to image, in the context of the living animal, this specific cell. We can do the same thing for AIY and for the downstream interneurons, and that allows us to probe the morphology of these neurons in the context of the living animal. So that's how we do that part. But what is, what is GFP? What is it that we are driving that allows us to see these cells? Before I, I give a brief introduction of GFP, I'd like to mention that there are a number of excellent lectures that go in more in depth. Actually, the discovery lectures by the people that made the discoveries that I'm about to describe in the iBio website. So I encourage you to go and visit that website and, and learn more about this. But very briefly, GFP is a protein that is normally expressed in the wild by this beautiful organism, which is a jellyfish. And it expresses essentially two proteins that, allows it, that allow it to glow in the dark. One of them is aquaorine, which is a molecule that reacts to calcium and emits blue light. And then there's a second protein called GFP, or green fluorescent protein, that then uh, receives that blue light and then shines green. And what scientists did is that they identified what those genes were. The scientists that did that are actually over here. They won the Nobel Prize for their discoveries because this was a, essentially a curiosity-driven fundamental discovery that changed the way in which we can image proteins or image cells in living organisms. The person that originally identified the proteins that the jellyfish is using to uh, shine light was Osamu Shimomura, and is the scientist over here. And then Martin Chalfie was the first person that put them into an organism. Actually, he put them into C. elegans. And Roger Chen it was the person that developed a number of different colors that enable uh, more versatility and use of these probes. So again, Osamu Shimomura, what he did is that he took the jellyfish, and this is, I want to emphasize this because it's very important to understand how scientific discoveries are made. The first point is that this is uh, curiosity-driven research. So Osamu Shimomura did not start with a question of like, let's try to cure this disease or that disease. He started just by wanting to understand how is it that this jellyfish is able to grow. But because knowledge begets knowledge, and it's cumulative, and scientists kind of build on each other's discoveries, we were able to use those very important uh, observations 
to, to revolutionize the way that cell biology is done. So he purified the proteins. Then there was another scientist that actually did not receive the Nobel Prize, but what is recognized by the community because his, his contributions were fundamental to the development of GFP as a probe, and that person is Douglas Brasher. And essentially what he did is that he, once the protein was identified, he identified what gene encoded that protein. He was um, very collaborative and generous with his knowledge, and that allowed Martin Chalfi to take that gene and put it with the promoters that I explained earlier, put it into different uh, tissues in C. elegans and be able to observe the morphology of these tissues, much like I explained in the first part of the talk. And finally, the, the original protein that the jellyfish makes is a green fluorescent protein, but that protein can be altered to glow in different colors. And that was the work of, of Roger Chen, which increased the versatility of probes that can be used in vivo, and simultaneously, like you're seeing here in these tissues, to be able to image different cells. And using those type of probes, you can do things like, you can have, for example, green fluorescent protein, yellow fluorescent protein, red fluorescent protein, uh, these are actually bacteria that are expressing different uh, fluorescent proteins, and they can. This is this is from Roger Chen's lab. You can draw beautiful scenes with them. But importantly, for our work, you can label single neurons with these uh, fluorescent uh, proteins. And again, I want to emphasize that if you want to learn more about this, you can go to the iBiology seminar series and discovery series to hear more about how these discoveries were made. Now, this is how we can label and, and create an animal like this. This is an image that was gifted to me by Mark Hammerlund, my friend and colleague from Yale University, and we are labeling here GABA neurons and acetylcholine neurons, which are two different neuron classes, and you can actually distinguish them. Some of, some of these neurons are right on top of each other, so you see it in yellow, but others are in the head region. You see them in red, or you can see these, these uh, nerites that are crossing in green, and they correspond to different neuron classes. And we can do this in part because the nematode is transparent. So what do we use that for in my lab? So essentially, as I mentioned, we're interested in understanding how the architecture of the nervous system facilitates behavior. And I will argue that keystone, central to that architecture, are synapses. So synapses are points of connectivity between cells, like you're seeing right here. And since we've recognized, and by we, I mean the field, recognized that neurons are specific cells, we've known that where the positions of the synapses are specified is critical for specifying the function of the circuit. Because when, where, and how a synapse is assembled and modified establishes, establishes how the information is going to flow through the circuit. So we're interested in that cell biology of the synapse. And we're interested in the cell biology at two levels. One of them is, how is it that synapses are built and maintained to be able to sustain the architecture of the nervous system? So how, how are they established during development to be able to sustain behavior? And the second one is, how is it that they're modified by the experience of the animal to, uh, so that the animals can learn? And there's an inherent tension between these two points, because what makes you really good at, in this point here, which is essentially the uh, stereotypicity, the rigidity of, of positioning synapses will make you weak over here, which is the plasticity, the flexibility. So we're interested in how the cell biology of the synapse resolves that tension. And to, Exemplify our work, I'm going to use a quote by the person that essentially discovered the synapse, which was a Spanish scientist called Santiago Ramón y Cajal, who first described the synapse as, I'm going to read it in Spanish and then in English, osculos protoplasmicos que parecen constituir el éxtasis final de una épica historia de amor, which translates into 
Protoplasmic kisses that appear to constitute the final ecstasy of an epic love story. This is the first description of the synapse. So who, who doesn't want to work on that? Come on. So essentially, the, I, I love the metaphor, but what I like particularly is that you can think of the synapse as the canary in the mine. If you're able to visualize a synapse and you can alter that synapse in some way, you can figure out what is important for the formation of that synapse. You can figure out all of these steps that need to happen in the plot, that plot that leads to these two neurons finding each other and kiss that final like uh, kiss at the end of the plot. If you can disrupt that, you can figure out what are the important parts of the plot. And that's what my lab does. So how do we do that? And so we look at the cell biology of the synapse in development and behavior. And we do that by, again, using this concept. But over here, we, for the cDNA, we actually use synaptic proteins. So let me explain how we use synaptic proteins to be able to probe the, the plot of the neurodevelopment as the synapses are being formed in the animal. So I showed you this image earlier. So this is just expressing the, the probe cytoplasmically. So it's all over the cell. So you can look. It's very useful because you can look at the cell morphology. But if you want to see where these specific synapses are, first you need to understand which proteins are actually localized at the synapse. And it turns out that a synapse, it, it's formed of two parts, the presynaptic neuron, which talks to the postsynaptic neuron. And here we have it uh, schematized here, presynaptic talking to the postsynaptic. And importantly, the presynaptic region is formed by synaptic vesicles. These are like little balloons chock full of neurochemical information. So that's what the neurons use to communicate with each other. And those uh, vesicles are going to fuse with this area that I, that I represent with this, this dark region. And that region, what, what, it, what it constitutes is just Think of, think of it like a loading dock. It's an area where the vesicles fuse, and then they release the neurotransmitter information into the postsynaptic cell. But both the vesicles and this region, which is called the active zone, there are a number of proteins that form part of it. And what my lab has done is that we have used that knowledge that has been generated by others to label those proteins and visualize where these synapses are. So here, for example, we have a synaptic vesicle-associated protein called RAP3, and it's labeled with GFP, so it's fused to GFP. And you can see that the, the pattern of this image is very different from the pattern of this image. This is the same cell, but you're seeing a different, different regions being labeled. Here, for reference, I put a dash box in the same area of the cell. And you can, the, you can see that this region here, for example, is not present in the, in the darker image over there. And the reason is because there are no synapses here. So when you look over here, you don't see any synapses either or you don't see synapses in the cell body. But you do see synapses in this region here, which is, corresponds over there to that, to that dash box. So we can look at the distribution using these markers of the, of the synapses along the neurite and by labeling the synaptic vesicles or also labeling the active zone. So here's another image. And you can see these two images are actually uh, very similar to each other. Now, they correspond to two different animals, and they correspond to two different subcellular structures. So that just tells us that, that the synaptic distribution is, is actually stereotyped um, across animals. And that's important for us as geneticists, because what we do is that we use this pattern and we try to break it to find what molecules are important for the formation of this pattern, as I'll be explaining in the next uh, couple of slides. So we can, we can image these uh, synaptic vesicles. We, has, we have also developed probes not only to image the presynaptic sites, as we're doing here with the vesicles and the active zones, but also over a dozen different cell biological markers that label the mitochondria and other organelles, and we can label any of those organelles in any of these uh, cells. 
So we can look at the cell biology of the synapse in the context of the living animal. And then we have collaborated with a number of people, including my friend and colleague Harry Shroff at the NIH, to be able to develop microscopes like the one I'm showing here, which is the dual uh, view selective plane illumination microscope uh, that Harry created to, to observe how the uh, nervous system forms in the embryo. So here's a movie of the type of images that we can generate. Here we're labeling all neurons, and you can see the outgrowth of neurites in the embryo, which is right here. And you can see a ring over here, which corresponds to the nerve ring. It's going to become very clear in this image. That's the brain of the animal. So we can see the formation of the brain of the animal in the living organism. We can also label specific synapses. If you're interested in how this microscope works and how it enables us to be able to image these processes with the probes we've developed in the early embryos, I encourage you to look at Harry's uh, seminar on how a light sheet microscopy works. And also, I have a seminar where I talk more broadly about collaborations and how they're so enabling in science. So the collaboration is a big part of our, of our research program. But for now, I'd like to say that we can use these microscopes in collaboration with a number of groups, including Jerome Bao's group in Sloan Kettering and Bill Muller at UConn, to be able to understand how is it that the nervous system comes together in the early embryo. So this is a consortium that is building what will be a movie for the first time in any animal of all of the decisions made in neurons as they're coming together. Now, uh, the way that we can do that, as I was mentioning, is through the visualization of specific proteins that we have tagged with GFP. So this is this category here. I'd like to tell you a little bit about this final category here, where we can use the promoters that, that have been identified, both with GFP, but also with other sensors, or ways of killing cells, to be able to then link the cell biology with the behavior of the animal. So I uh, mentioned earlier that we can do these behavioral assays. This is how wild-type animals look. Just a reminder, if they're grown in the cold, they will move in this direction. If they're grown in the warmth, they will move in this direction. So we can take animals and we can express in a population of animals using these uh, cell-specific promoters that, I, that I've been discussing. We can express uh, caspases or other proteins that kill the cells in the individual animals, but in a population. And then we can do experiments where we can determine when we kill that neuron that, that you're seeing there, AFD, the sensory neuron, these animals are now incapable of performing the thermotaxis behavior. So that tells us that that neuron is very important. And if we want to understand what that neuron is doing, what it's responding to, we have developed rigs or equipment in collaboration with a number of labs, including Arabi Samuel at Harvard University. Here, this is a microscope with a little piece of equipment that allows us to very precisely change the temperature and then visualize what this neuron is doing. And we can visualize what that neuron is doing by using a probe that I'll explain now, which is called GCAM6. GCAM6 is a probe that is a calcium sensor, so it allows us to see changes in calcium in the neuron. And with this rig, we can give a temperature stimuli, like you're seeing here, and that, that what you're going to be seeing is that, essentially, we're changing the temperature very finely. That red line represents the temperature at which the animal was raised. And you're going to see that when I move this placeholder, you see the cell body, and you're not going to see anything when it's below the threshold or the temperature it was raised. But now, it's like a sing-along. Every time that it goes above the temperature, above this threshold, every time that it goes up, it, this, this neuron will fire, or you'll see uh, calcium transients. So that tells us that this neuron is responding to increases of temperature above a given threshold. And I'll be talking more about this work in the third part of the, of the, um, of the lectures. 
And that's essentially how we can do this work. This, this is how we can link the cell biology of the synapse with behavior and understand how is it that these synapses are established during development and how is it that they're modified um, with behavior. Now, we can, we can probe these phenotypes. We can probe the wild type behavior of the animal, the wild type distribution of the synapses and the morphology of the neuron in the context of the living behaving animal. But how can we disrupt it to identify the genes that are important for the normal functioning? of the nervous system of the animal. And that's where genetics comes in. And I'll give a very brief primer on genetics to explain how we said that, that we do our work and uh, make our discoveries. So very briefly, when you think about genetics, you can think, people talk about forward genetics and reverse genetics, which are two terms that are kind of confusing if you're not in the genetic field, but I'll break it down conceptually in this slide. So forward genetics, essentially you start with a biological process. So in our case, we can start with the behavior, or we can start with the position, the normal distribution of the synapses. And then what you're doing is reverse engineering. So you know when you have a little kid that wants to understand how is it that a toy works and they break it to see what the important parts are, that's what we do. So we have a biological process that works well and we break it. And I'll explain how we break it in a second. Once you break it, you isolate once animals essentially that are mutants, meaning that they, they're not performing the process normally. You identify what you broke, which is important, and then you analyze how, is, how it is important. So that's forward genetics. This is what most people associate with genetics. There's also reverse genetics where you actually start with a gene. So you start by, by having a candidate of something that, that, that you suspect will be important, and then you have a biological process that you analyze to see if that specific gene that you hypothesize is important for a given process, if it's actually important for the given process. So in order for, to, for, for, for anybody to be able to do genetics, including us, we you need a phenotype. In our case, our phenotypes are the behavior of the animal that I show you, the thermotaxis behavior, or the synaptic positions. Then you mutagenize a bunch of worms. Now, this is, people get confused about this. Here's the main concept. You are randomly putting, you're putting a chemical. In, in our case, we use EMS, which is a chemical that's frequently used to mutagenize animals. And you're creating a bunch of different mutations. So yes, you're going to have animals that are going to die, and they're going to look weird in a number of different ways. But because you have your, the phenotype of interest, you only pick up mutants in your phenotype of interest. You're not picking every mutant under the sun, because then you're going to have a ton of mutants and, and, and too little time to characterize all of them. So we have the synaptic position. We pick up mutants that affect the synaptic position, for example. So it's unbiased. You don't know what you're affecting. You pick up the ones with interesting phenotypes or the abnormal ones, and then you figure out where the genetic lesion that resulted in that phenotype is, which I'll be explaining in a slide. The, the main concept of how is it that we can figure out where the genetic lesion is once we have a phenotype is explained very briefly here. And for the purpose of today's explanation, I will color the two DNAs in these two different colors. And essentially, the main concept here is that we can tell the difference between the DNA that comes from this strain, which is our mutant strain, and the one that we use to map, which is a special strain. In our case, we use one that's called Hawaiian. It's a strain of C. elegans that was isolated in Hawaii. But it can be a number of different mapping strains. The, the important concept, and this is the most important part, is what I'm representing in color here are what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms. And don't get confused with the lingo. It just means that we can differentiate the DNA that's coming from each of these two original strains. So here we have our mutant um, that looks like a little fat worm, and we're mating it with the Hawaiian one, which 
I'm representing here with this beautiful flower color. So we, we made them, and then in the offspring, you're going to have animals that are going to be heterozygotes, so you're not going to be able to see the mutant phenotype. Here I'm assuming the mutant phenotype is a recessive single genetic lesion for the purposes of today's explanation, so you don't see it because it's a recessive lesion in the context of the wild-type animal. Then you sell those animals, and in the next generation, you're going to have a bunch of animals that don't see the phenotype. Now here, you have to understand we're tracking the phenotype because we don't know what the, the genetic lesion is. We're tracking the phenotype to find the genetic lesion. So we don't know that they look like this, but we do know that they look like that. We know that they don't look like fat and little. So, so we hypothesize that we have a heterozygote animal. And then we have animals, however, that, are, that have the, the mutant phenotype of the original parent strain. And they're going to have, they're all going to have deletion in the same part of the, of the chromosome. And deletion has to come, and this is the most important part, it has to come from this orange DNA, so to speak. It has to come from this original strain. And it has to come from there because that's where the mutation came from. So now you just have to identify the areas of the DNA in the offspring that look mutant that have that orange DNA. That's essentially what you're doing. So for example, if you have this animal, you know that the lesion cannot be in this region because it has red DNA, so it cannot be there. In this animal, it cannot be in this region because it has red DNA. And in this animal here, it cannot be in this region because it has red DNA. So then you kind of narrow it down the region. And you do this iteratively many times until you identify the genetic lesion area. Now, the, the, the main concept of the mapping is that you have two strains. The mutation needs to be in the original strain. It cannot come from the red strain because this red strain didn't have the mutation. And you can tell the difference between the two strains by what's called DNA fingerprinting, which is essentially differences between the two DNAs, which I'm representing here in color. If you understand this conceptually, you understand genetic mapping. So, the work that we have done, for example, and I'll go into more detail in the second part of the presentation, but just to give you an example of how we use these techniques all together for discovery, is that we can start with a phenotype. This is the wild-type phenotype. This is the distribution of the synapses. We do a forward genetic screen. We identify a mutant in which that distribution is abnormal. Hopefully, you can tell the difference between that picture and the one that is right next to it. So it's a mutant phenotype. And then we identify what is it that we affected here that affects the distribution of the synapses. So it turns out by doing that kind of analysis and then identifying where these genes are acting to be able to establish the correct um, development of the synapses, we discovered that there's a gene called uh, netrin, which is expressed by glia cells, and that that gene is essentially specifying where the uh, presynaptic sites that you're seeing there in the, in the wild-type image, where they're going to form. And it does so by instructing the localization of its receptor, which then drives a signal transduction cascade that ultimately culminates in the organization of the cytoskeleton and the clustering of synaptic vesicles. So the reason that, for example, in this mutant here, you have fewer synaptic vesicles in this area as compared to the wild-type animal over here is because you have a mutation in, in the instructions that are specifying the, form, the, the clustering of the vesicles there. And if you alter that in single cells, then you can also alter the behavior of the animal, which we'll be talking in the part two of the presentation. But the main concept that falls out of this type of discoveries, the main contribution of this type of work, is the fact that by doing this type of work, we, we establish that glia specifies in living animals the site of synaptic formation. And this was surprising because we were hypothesizing that what was going to be specifying the site of the synaptic 
connectivity will be the postsynaptic cell that the that this neuron is talking to. And it turns out that it's not the postsynaptic cell, it's actually kind of like a matchmaker cell, which is called the glia, which is telling those two cells to meet at a, at a specific place and connect to each other. So hopefully this example brings together all the concepts that I've been describing. But the, the process of discovery, both for our labs and other labs in, in, in C. elegans, essentially what it does is that it allows you in the simple organism to link a number of fields that are usually disconnected in other fields, uh, like genetics, development, cell biology, uh, physiology, imaging, etc., to be able to uh, make uh, gene discoveries of, of fundamental processes that control neural connectivity. So I hope this lecture helped illustrate the three points that I'm making here. How is it that my lab is able to image synapses in living animals? How we can track the behaviors and then link the cell biology of the synapse with the behavior of the animal? And how we can use genetics to uncover new mechanisms that underpin the cell biology of the synapse and how it regulates the behavior of the organism. In the next two talks, I'll be taking these concepts that I explained today, the techniques, and I'll be uh, giving you specific examples of discoveries that we've made using them. So in, the, in part two of this series, I'll be talking about how is it that synapses are built and maintained in the living organism. And in the part three, I'll be telling you about how synapses can be modified to accommodate learned behavioral preferences. Underpinning these two interests is our aspiration to understand the cell biology of the synapse, both in development and in behavior. With that, I'd like to thank the people of my lab that did the work and also the funding agencies that made our work possible. Thank you.